we are continuing our study in the book of Matthew. So if you want to grab that Bible in front of you, the one you brought or the one that's in the pew, we're in Matthew chapter 5. This is page 810 in your pew Bible. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. And as we do here, we honor God's word by standing. So if you'll stand with me as we read God's word to begin our our message. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. You may be seated. Fathers, we open your word this morning expecting to hear from you. We pray most of all for understanding. We don't understand the way you do things. For many of us, that that turns us from you. For some of us, we trust you anyway. And we know that's by your grace. And we ask this morning that, that we would have both the trust that you give us as we look to your word, and we'd have understanding that comes from the Spirit. So open our our minds to take in these, these wondrous mysteries. And as we come to a better understanding of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, Father, would you let that pierce our hearts and draw us closer to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm fighting a cold this week, so I, I tried not to sing to save my voice. <laughs> it does never go over well. I, uh, I couldn't help it. So I'm going to preach, and then if I don't have a voice left for a business meeting, then that'll be okay. That'll keep that short, and we can go home and watch football. <laughs> well, there are times when, when, when what is said in the Bible, what is revealed to us in Scripture, is confusing. And yet, those things aren't super important. We, we can take some guesses about what those confusing things mean and then try not to build our entire faith on that guessed ground and then hope that one day we'll understand those areas of Scripture we didn't understand in this life. And we can know that in, with those areas of Scripture that our not understanding doesn't affect our salvation or our understanding of who God is, or how we respond to God with worship. The beginning of Genesis 6 is one of those areas. Have you ever read the beginning of Genesis chapter 6? 
There's this strange story about the sons of God finding the daughters of man irresistibly attractive and taking them as their wives. I don't know what that means because I don't know who the sons of God are in that passage. I, I also don't know who the, what's called the Nephilim are or the mighty men of old are in that passage. And yet, not understanding the beginning of Genesis chapter 6 doesn't change the way I think about who God is or what he's accomplished. And then there are passages like our text this morning. They're confusing. Really confusing. And at the same time, they're absolutely essential to our salvation. Our our passage this morning is very near to the, the core of the gospel message. How, how we understand this text helps us to answer the question, why did Jesus come? That's, that's an important question, by the way. And knowing that something like this gets us closer to that question should, should motivate us, shouldn't it? We want to know what this means, God. And so it motivates us to dig and study God's word. Well, as we do that, I don't know if you've read ahead. I hope, hope some of you have. These are the questions, the three big questions that I have when I look at this text, verses 17 through 20. The first is, what is the purpose of the law? What is the purpose of the law? Why did God give the law? We're going to look at that today. And then knowing the purpose of the law, we can better understand the second question. How does Jesus fulfill the law? And lastly, verse 20 introduces this really big idea that's actually also very scary about having a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is what is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? I want to give pause here because I know that some of you are already thinking, look, I didn't read it. I don't care what this says this I can already tell this isn't going to help me at all because I just want to know how to get through this week here's the encouragement I have for you this morning okay Jesus Christ offers you more than this week he offers you a peace that passes understanding from this week through eternity but listen that peace is directly proportionate to how deeply you treasure Christ. If he is just a a, a teddy bear for you to come and squeeze on Sundays to get all your feels, if if he's just an idea that makes you feel better about who you are, then you will never know him the way that he wants you to know him. You'll never know what he truly offers you. The the better you know him and the better you know and understand what he's done for you, the greater you'll treasure him and the greater you'll love him and the greater your assurance of your salvation in him will be. And the easier it will be to trust him and the easier it will be to follow him. You see why this is kind of important? So if you you look at this text and you say, nope, that's theology. I don't like theology. I don't like doctrine. I just want to know what to do to be a Christian. You're missing the mark. This is Jesus revealing himself to you. So I would invite you to pay attention. 
this morning. To look to his word, to, to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that he provides us, okay? Well, let's look at the first section, what we call the purpose of the law. And I'm going to try to stay with our notes as best we can. And I'll go ahead and tell you, this is the longest section. Because the purpose of the law is the entire Old Testament. All right? John Newton, I don't know if you know John Newton, the pastor who gave us the song Amazing Grace. You heard that song? He said of the law, he said, ignorance of the design and nature of the law is at the bottom of most religious mistakes. He's saying that this law and gospel stuff is really easy to confuse. It's really easy to mix up. How many times have you heard someone say that the same book that outlaws the eating of shellfish outlaws homosexuality? And since eating shellfish is obviously not forbidden anymore, then neither should be homosexuality. Have you heard that argument before? It's common, isn't it? Or or how often have you heard a Christian say, Jesus forgives me for my sin, so it's no big deal if I lie or get drunk or cuss out my kids or cheat on my spouse. Right? Forgiveness? So sin isn't a big deal. Those are examples of misunderstandings of the purpose of the law. And not understanding the purpose of the law, even as Christians, can lead to a poor witness on our part. Here's what happens with you and me. All right, see if you can track with me. Because we misunderstand the purpose of the law, how it relates to the gospel, we end up saying that the parts of the law that are easy for us to obey, everyone else must obey. And the things that are hard for us to obey are places where we need grace. Right? So, so if you're someone for whom staying married is easier than it is for other people, you might be prone to say, Staying married is a command from God that we must obey. Divorce is sin. And then we look down on anyone who hasn't been able to obey this command. And we feel a little taller, a little air of self-righteousness for our accomplishment. But suppose at the same time, the sin you excel in is laziness. Suppose you are extremely prone to give in to the the temptation to just stare at the Facebook all day long or to binge watch on Netflix. And so when this sin is revealed in your life, rather than repenting, you play your cheap grace card and say, nobody's perfect, right? See what's happening? A, A misunderstanding of the purpose of the law leads to two bad outcomes simultaneously. It leads to a self-righteous posture where obedience is convenient and an abuse of grace where obedience is difficult. We want to simultaneously withhold mercy from others while at the same time claiming mercy for ourselves. You see the the error that John Newton is talking about? Friends, that's a distortion of the gospel. And that distortion is the very reason why we as Christians find it so difficult to be salt and light, like we talked about last week. That, That distortion is why our public witness is so 
poor sometimes. It's why we as Christians are often known more for our hypocrisy than we are for our faith. And all of that comes from a misunderstanding of the purpose of the law and how Christ fulfills the law. And while that's true, it doesn't have to be that way. If we're willing to invest some time seeking some understanding here in these four verses, not only will our thoughts of Christ be elevated, but so will our lives in him. Right? So, so when Jesus talks about the law and the prophets in verse 17, if you've still got your Bibles open, verse 17, he says that he hasn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. When he talks about that, we understand that Jesus is talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. Law plus prophets equals the Old Testament altogether. The prophets we generally understand to be the second part of the Old Testament, and the law we understand to be Moses' writings, Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, Pentateuch, the Torah. In those books of the law, there are 613 commandments, not just 10. 613 commandments. 248 of those commandments are things we must do, 365, one for every day, are commands of things we must not do. We know that Jesus is talking or referring in some way to this commandments portion of Moses' writings because of what he says. Look at verse 19. In verse 19, he says that if someone were to relax these commandments, he's talking about the commandments part of the law, or even teach others to relax these commandments, then they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the law at least has something to do with commandments, doesn't it? But Jesus' hearers knew that the law means more than just the commandments. That's not obvious to us. We hear law, and what do we think? Speed limit, 65. Buckle up, it's the law. They hear law, Jesus is here, they hear the word law, and they think Moses, covenant, God's promises, God's commands. It's a lot more than just do this, don't do this. Right? The, the law to the Jewish people was God's revealing of himself to his people and showing them from all the nations, choosing them rather from all the nations of the world. So the law is important to them. It was God's showing them favor. And it's always involved his promises and it always involved his expectations of them. They all work together. Kind of a rough illustration of how they understood the law. So hearing Jesus say the law, they especially would have been reminded of the most important part of the law to them. God's covenant with Abraham. That covenant was sort of like a contract with promises and terms and conditions, the stuff we don't normally read, and it it defined who they were as the people of God. The commands portion of law were always meant to be understood in their relationship to the covenant. So here's the idea. All right, this is sort of in three minutes, the history of Israel. God called Abraham out of his home country, and, and God told him, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name 
great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you Abraham all of the families of the earth shall be blessed that's a big promise all right that's that is what Israel is holding on to as their origin story there As Abraham's journey continues from chapter 12 in Genesis all the way to chapter 15, he begins to doubt God's faithfulness. He hasn't had any children yet. So God reveals himself to Abraham again. And this time he takes Abraham outside and he says, Abraham, look at the night sky. Abraham looks up and there's lots of stars, maybe even a a wolf blood moon. (laughs) And, and, And God says to Abraham, number the stars if you can. That's your offspring. So shall your offspring be. And this, this part is important to our story today. Don't miss this. After hearing this promise from God, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. That's what faith is. Believing the Lord. Believing what the Lord has promised. Abraham's righteousness wasn't according to his obedience to any commandments. Right? There, is, there aren't commandments yet. He was righteous because he believed in the Lord's promise. Keep going through history, okay? Abraham's family begins to grow. There's a famine in the land, so they have to go down to Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, the family grows gangbusters, and they're prosperous and fruitful, and the king of Egypt feels threatened by this growing tribe of people. So he enslaves them, and he tries to suppress their growth. They're oppressed, and yet they keep multiplying. God raises up Moses to deliver the people, and through all sorts of miraculous judgments... God redeems his people back out of the land of Egypt. But by this time, more than 400 years have passed since Abraham. And the Israelites are an enormous tribe, thousands and thousands. They're like their own nation now. But there's a problem here. While they were in Egypt, for all those generations, they were influenced in many ways by the Egyptian gods and the Egyptian goddesses, the Egyptian religion. And this is is the people that they're around. And God is taking them to a land where there are even more false gods and goddesses, idols. Another religion to deal with. So in order to to preserve the Israelites as his covenant people, God gives Moses a set of commandments. It begins as a reminder to always celebrate the Passover, that night when because of the blood of a lamb, death passed over God's people. From there, they received the Ten Commandments that basically define how the people are to love and worship God and how they're to love their neighbors. As their society becomes more complex, more laws become necessary. By the time you get to the end of Deuteronomy, there are all those 600-some-odd laws, all sorts of laws, everything you can think of. Laws that explain that you can eat crickets and fish, but you cannot eat owls, camels, badgers, or bats. Laws that say when and who can go into the tabernacle. Laws about what to do with sick people. What to do with dead people. How to be made clean after you're sick or after you've touched a dead person. What the people should and shouldn't wear. How men should cut their hair. And what to do with foreigners. And how to make sacrifices. And who is supposed to make sacrifices. And who gets what land. When to rest. When to work. How often to celebrate feasts. Lots of laws. Paul, fast forward all the way to the New Testament, 
He's a New Testament apostle. He's trained as an expert in all of those laws. He knows all of those laws and all the commentaries about those laws. And he tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that the purpose of all of those laws was to act as a sort of guardian. The guardian to, to keep the people as God's people. They were supposed to remember that the law was teaching them and guiding them towards God's promise. The law kept them as the covenant people of God, but they were always to look forward. Always to look forward to the fulfillment of God's promises in Abraham. Our promises to Abraham, rather. As a guardian, or some of your translations in Galatians say a tutor, a teacher, the law was meant to teach and show God's people that the only way that they would ever be saved was through God's work for them. The only way. And yet, constantly, Israel's downfall was trying to find a salvation outside of God. They gave in to the influence of other nations and they worshipped idols. They sought human power and human means to power. And they allied with other governments to protect them and keep them secure. And yet God was constantly pointing them to trust in him and his work for them and his promises to them. We're that way too, aren't we? We're always looking for some way to find a righteousness or a goodness or some sense of security outside of God. We want to find it in ourselves or in something that we know, that we can see, that we, that we can trust, something man-made, something we can attain. Here's how we do that. We get the standard, we set the standard of, of good below God. And then we reach out and we attain it. And we say, oh, I, I got the good. I got the good life. So, so say you make your ultimate good your enjoyment of family. That's not a bad thing, right? Family's good. If we do that, then we can orchestrate our lives in such a way that we defend and spend as much time as possible with our families. We go on vacations together. We have meals together. We protect one another. We even go to church together. These aren't bad things. In fact, those are things that we should do as Christian families. But here's the problem. Because we have made family out to be our highest good, in the long run, what we'll do is we'll choose our family's good over other families. We'll end up sinning against other families, falling short of God's law, because we have made something other than God our highest good. Do you see how that works? Maybe this would make more sense. Suppose that worldly success is your highest good. You can arrange your life in such a way that you can have worldly success. You can strive and work to get a top-notch education. You can go as high as you can with your career. You can make as much money as possible. And then you can purchase things to show your status and your wealth. And you, you achieve your goal. You receive the respect and the admiration of people. And you can do that. You can attain that. And yet, just like the problem with making family the highest good, you can't attain worldly success without sinning against others. 
at some point your goals will conflict with someone else's. And you'll have to choose between your own good and theirs. You'll sin against them and you'll fall short of God's law because you have made your own success the highest good to be attained. What the law was meant to do is show us that the good life, the highest good, was only found by being in the presence of God. And that came as a result of God fulfilling his own promise to his own people. And that was something Israel couldn't do on their own. The law taught them about their inability. It it taught them about their inability to be like God in his holiness. It taught them about their inability to be with God because of their sin. It was always meant to point them forward to a salvation that would come only through the love and the mercy of God and not from their own efforts to attain it. The, The law is good. That, that good purpose of the law is how David could say in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So so think of the law, if you will, as a sort of protective shield that spans above the people from Moses on one end all the way to Jesus on the other. When Israel throughout all those generations when they looked up they'd see the law and they'd be reminded to look forward to God's promises their faith was always to be in God's faithfulness that's where their access to God came from so that's the purpose of the law but what does Jesus mean when he says he came to fulfill the law In verse 17, Jesus tells us, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We're on our second point now. Well, I hope hope you understand that what it means that Jesus came to fulfill the prophets. We see that in this passage very clearly. But we've been talking about his fulfilling of the prophets from Matthew 1.1 all the way to last week. All the way to 5.16. Matthew's been showing us over and over again how Christ fulfills the prophets or basically all the Old Testament after Deuteronomy. Jesus fulfills all the promises of the coming king. He fulfills the promises of a return from exile. He fulfills the promise of the presence of God with his people. He fulfills the promise of freedom from sin. Six times Matthew has told us This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. Over and over again, we see Jesus fulfilling who the Christ would be according to the prophets. And now he's saying, I also fulfill the law. So what does that mean? Well, if the law was meant to keep Israel as God's people and cause them to rely on him and know their own weaknesses and trust that he would be true to his promises, 
then the fulfillment of that law would come when those promises come to fruition. When Jesus says he has come to fulfill the law, what he's saying is, I have come to fulfill God's promise to Abraham. You don't need the guardian anymore, the shield above you anymore, because I'm here. Now you just need me. The the promise that all the nations would be blessed by the offspring of Abraham, they were to be met in Jesus. Jesus is that offspring of that promise. That's how we understand his fulfilling the covenants part of the law. He's also the final sacrifice. The law talked about sacrifices. He's also the temple. He's also the prophet who speaks on behalf of God. He's also the great high priest who intercedes for his people. He's the king who rules over the heavenly kingdom. All of the rituals and ceremonies that were a part of the old law were fulfilled in Christ. And because the nation isn't just a tribe of Israel anymore, now it's every tribe and tongue and nation of people that are being brought to Christ. All those civil laws that governed Israel are also fulfilled in Christ. Then you have this other aspect of the law. We call it the moral aspect of the law. What shows us righteousness? What is goodness? The moral aspects of the law are also fulfilled in Christ. He is the perfect righteousness. When Jesus fulfills the old law, the old covenant, he brings with him something new, though. What we call the new covenant. We've been talking about that. In fact, this is how your Bibles are arranged. The old covenant goes Genesis to Matthew. The new covenant begins in Matthew and goes through Revelation. Only we just call it the Old Testament and the New Testament. But those words mean the same thing. Something that's striking about this new covenant or this New Testament is that it takes the old law and that standard of righteousness that kept God's people his, and then God takes that and he writes it on our hearts. It's not on stone anymore. It's on our hearts. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Because of Christ, the law, the standard of righteousness, the human picture of the holiness of God is no longer external to us, pointing us to Christ. Christ fulfills the law, and then by God's grace, when we are made new by the Holy Spirit, the law becomes a part of who we are, it's written on our hearts because we're in Christ. The law doesn't go away. I say that again. The law doesn't go away. Just because the purpose is fulfilled, the law as a standard of righteousness doesn't go away. Jesus says that exact same thing in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Not one bit of it will pass away until the heavens and the earth pass away. It doesn't go away. 
that standard of righteousness continues into this age. By the power of the Spirit, Jesus lived perfectly according to the law. He died, defeating the power of sin that lives in our flesh. That troublesome part of us that was never able to obey the law. And then he was resurrected as a proof, as a, as a testimony to what he had accomplished. And after that, he ascended into heaven and he sent who to us? The Spirit. The same Spirit that guided him in perfect obedience to the law. So when Jesus says he fulfilled the law, we are to understand that he fulfilled the purpose of the law. The law no longer has to act as a guardian to point God's people to the coming promise because the promise has arrived. And through the promise, God's presence can go out to all the nations, you and me. See, if it weren't for Jesus' fulfillment of the law, we would still be strangers to God's goodness. But because of Jesus' work, we, we can be brought in. And that gets us to our third point here. This last issue we have to deal with, this greater righteousness. Well, the difficulty here is with verse 20. This is our obstacle, isn't it? Look again at verse 20. Jesus tells us, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's an old saying in Jesus' day that if only two people could get into heaven, one would be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee. How, how is that? It's contrary to what Jesus is saying, isn't it? It's because contrary to the design of the law, the people believe that perfect obedience to the letter of the law is what earned them salvation. They weren't seeing that the law as a shield. They were seeing it as something to be driven through by good works. Scribes, whose job was to make copies of the Bible and interpret it and teach it, and Pharisees, a group of people who lived according to the law, these two groups were the best law obeyers that Israel had to offer. Everyone looked up to them. We often demonize them because of our understanding of the Gospels, but these were the good guys to everyone. They were both the teachers and the definition of righteousness. And here's Jesus new on the scene and he blows all of that sky high and he says you've got to be more righteous than your heroes than the kings of righteousness or you're not a part of the inheritance you, you don't give the kingdom of heaven can you imagine how disappointed the people would be it's like all of the kids with the golden ticket to get into Wonka's factory, get to the gates, and Wonka says, your ticket is not golden enough. If they can't get in, nobody gets in. Everybody thought they could get in on the coattails of the scribes and Pharisees. But now these guys can't enter. There's no hope now. What Jesus has said would be devastating. scribes and Pharisees obeyed the law to the very best of their ability but they didn't live according to the purpose of the law 
They didn't let the law point them to the coming Christ. Because if they had, they would have embraced Christ. Only one person has a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. We talked about this this week, kids, didn't we? Jesus. We talked about this in family devotions. When we read this text as a family, and I asked that question, who has the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes? And all of my kids said, Jesus. We know that. Only Jesus lived according to the intent and the letter of the law. In accordance with the Spirit, Jesus perfectly lived up to God's standard of righteousness. So Jesus is the only one qualified to live in the kingdom of heaven. It belongs to Jesus. He's the king. And from our reading of it, when we look at this, we think he's going to be a lonely king. So the question we should be asking, and I hope you are, is how do I get that righteousness that gets me in? How can we get entrance into the kingdom of heaven? Well, for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to show us what living in that righteousness looks like. And if you read it, you'll find very quickly that this is a standard of goodness, a standard of righteousness we can't attain. The scribes and Pharisees couldn't get there. Neither can we. Next week, for instance, we'll talk about anger. If you've ever been angry with someone or called them a mean name, then under the true standard of righteousness, you are as guilty as if you had murdered them. That one alone keeps all of us out. In February, we'll learn about learn from Jesus that if our eyes have ever followed a woman who isn't our wives just to skosh longer than they were supposed to, then we're guilty of adultery. If you've ever tried to get back at someone who wronged you, you're guilty. If you've ever tried to love your, uh, failed to love your enemy, you're guilty. If you ever failed to be true to your word, you're guilty. Unrighteous. Not qualified to enter the kingdom of heaven. We are condemned. We are condemned under God's standard of righteousness. We don't meet the entrance requirements. For those of you who think heaven comes to those who are just 51% good, like God's going to weigh your good versus your bad, and if your good wins, then you're in, what's Jesus saying here? He says, no, that's not how it works. No amount of helping old ladies across the street or being a good father or going to church or being a good employee, no amount of good work can outweigh the one angry thought that you had that makes you guilty. The entry requirement is 100% good and 0% bad. Nobody gets in but Jesus. Now, if we stopped reading Matthew's gospel right here in verse 20, say archaeologists have never found the rest of the manuscripts, This would be the worst news you can imagine, wouldn't it? This would be devastating. But there's good news. There's the rest of Matthew. Jesus didn't just live in perfect righteousness. He lived and then he died. And when he died, something happened. When Jesus died on the cross, he took all of our unrighteousness. 
All of our disobedience, all of our rebellion against God. He took all of our guilt, all of our shame upon himself. Every failure of ours to live up to that standard of righteousness, he took on himself. And in the same way that the law pointed Israel to God's future promise of the coming Christ, the Holy Spirit in us now stirs up our hearts and points us back to Jesus' work for us. And through faith in Jesus Christ's work, we get what he offers. Perfect righteousness. And that righteousness gains us entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In Christ, we go from not righteous to righteous. All in one fell swoop. Entry fee paid. But that's not all. In addition to receiving Christ's righteousness and being made right before the Father, those who are in Christ have the Spirit. This is a really big deal, church. Living in the kingdom of heaven now with the Spirit means we can live in the righteousness that Christ had. We don't do it perfectly, and we won't do it perfectly because we're still in the flesh. But we do have the Spirit. And with the Spirit, we can live in obedience to the righteousness of Christ. Believe it or not, because of the Spirit of Christ in us, we can resist the temptation to be angry. We can actually resist the temptation to lustfully look at someone who isn't our spouse. We, we actually can have a marriage that doesn't end up in divorce. We actually can be true to our word. The Spirit enables us to live according to the goodness of Christ. Romans 8.3 God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You picking up on that? What Jesus is about to teach us in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount can be fulfilled in us. It can be lived out in us because we have the Spirit. Because we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because of Jesus, we aren't only righteous before God, but we can live out that righteousness in a way that is salt and light to the world around us. In Christ, living by the Spirit, we can live out a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. That's the setup for all the teachings that we're about to receive from Jesus in coming weeks. If you miss that, what he's just shared with us, it's going to hurt. If you don't have the Spirit, if you haven't received Christ as King and Lord, and you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you will know your condemnation. But with the Spirit, with salvation in Christ, what He offers you, this is just good news over and over again. You see the good life put out in front of you. 
You see what flourishing means as a Christian. Put out in front of you, living by the Spirit. And all of this begins by the grace of God offered to you right now. We're about to sing a song that I haven't heard us sing here before, but it's not a new song. Written in the 1700s called Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. It's written by a man named Joseph Hart. Hart was someone who, by his own self-admission, struggled his whole life to, to understand what exactly being a Christian meant. And he struggled with it until, until he heard of the completeness of Christ's work. That Christ's work isn't just free us from slavery to sin, it frees us to obedience to God's law. That law's written on our hearts and it's sweet and it draws us to Christ. He learned that Christ freed us from the penalty for sin and at the same time Christ enabled him to live in obedience. Let me read for you in closing what is written on Joseph Hart's tomb. Joseph Hart was by the free and sovereign grace and spirit of God raised up from the depths of sin and delivered from the bonds of mere profession and self-righteousness. And led to rest entirely for salvation in the finished atonement and perfect obedience of Christ. Let that be said of all of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that because we're alive today, you are giving us an opportunity to respond to you in faith. We know that some of us have lived our 